Uh, if you are newer to our church, our worship center is not normally set up like this. Uh, it's set up like this because of a Christmas dessert theater that we're having. And if you haven't attended that yet, I would encourage you to come back tonight. They do a great job. Uh, if you're newer to our church, you probably also don't know that I was able to take a sabbatical this past summer. And my main project was to read the Bible and to kind of plan out a sermon series where we go through the whole Bible. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while. I've never been able to do it because I knew it would require a lot of time and energy and preparation, and the sabbatical afforded that. And so what we are doing now in our sermon series is we're going book by book, and we're talking about how each book points to and contributes to the big story. There's one big story of the Bible, and every book you know, contributes to that bigger story. We're also giving special attention to this theme of God the King and His kingdom. And how each book, what each book tells us about God the King and His kingdom. And I didn't just sort of make up that theme. A lot of people argue that's the theme of the Bible. God is the King. Uh, the, the, the world is under His domain. The earth is under His rule. And we are supposed to come under that rule. And uh, one of the eras of the storyline, there's actually, uh, God installs a king, an actual king over His kingdom. And that's what the books of First and Second Samuel are about, and First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And today we are in Second Chronicles, and we're going to continue to talk about this pattern that we see in the kingdom. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Please turn to Second Chronicles, chapter six. I'm going to read verses eighteen through twenty-one. The context here of the passage, Solomon is the king, and he is praying to God the king, and he's praying for God's blessing on this building that's just been built, this temple. Second Chronicles 6, beginning in verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet have regard... To the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house and the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear forgive. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And yet you have chosen to come down to us, to condescend down to us, to speak to us. I pray you'd speak to us this morning by your word and by your spirit for your glory. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. So the past couple of weeks, we've talked about this pattern that we see and we're going to return and, and, and talk about the same pattern, but from a slightly different perspective. And I think you'll see what I mean as we go. But the beginning of the pattern, once again, is that God blesses. This is the first part of the pattern. God blesses. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. God says, But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So it's a good reminder to us. God's the one who chose this land. God's the one who chose this city called Jerusalem. God is the one who chose this man called Abraham. 
God is the one who chose this man called David. God is the one who chose this people called Israel. And he does it by his grace. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need the city. He doesn't need the land. He doesn't need these people. But he does it by his grace. He does it to bless them. Look at, look at chapter 6, verse 18. I love this verse. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. It's a good reminder. God does not need a place to dwell. He dwells everywhere. He's present everywhere. He doesn't need a structure to dwell, but he chooses. He condescends down and chooses for a period of time to dwell in a tent. A tent is temporary. Put it up, take it down. Put it up, take it down. A tent. God. And then for a period of time, it's a building called a temple. And then for a period of time, it's, it's in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who walks the earth. And today, among whom does God dwell on the earth? He dwells among his people, within his people. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need the building. doesn't need the tent. But, but he chooses by his grace to do this, to bless us. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, this incredible story about the glory of God coming and dwelling in the temple. The people are knocked over off their feet because of the glory of God. But here's where, here's where the pattern starts. God's blessing. God blesses. It's so important to start there. And now let's turn to the second part of, of the pattern, and that is we rebel. We've seen this pattern repeated. We're getting tired of it at this point, right? We saw it in the garden. God creates a garden. It's good. It's paradise. It's glorious. And then sin enters in, and it messes everything up, and we rebel. And then you got the flood. God floods the earth, starts all over, starts with a godly man. And it doesn't take very long, and we mess up, and sin enters in, and we rebel, and the whole thing gets messed up again. And then God delivers his people from Egypt and meets with them on a mountain and gives them commands, speaks to them, gives them words. And you say, okay, this is it. God just gave them the commandments written down. This is going to be it, right? Wrong. Sin, rebellion, mess the whole thing up. And then God gives them a land. I'm going to give you a land miraculously. Incredible story about God providing this land. And they get in, they take over the land, and you think, surely this is it. It's about to happen. It's, you know, the kingdom of God is about to be established forever. Surely this is it. Wrong rebellion, sin, the whole thing gets messed up. And now here we are again at another pivotal point of the story. Solomon's on the throne. Temple is built. Glory of God fills the temple. Got the city, got the temple, got the land. I mean, this is it, right? They all lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. Sin, rebellion, everything gets messed up. Right, from a human perspective. And, and according to the chronicler, the emphasis in Chronicles is, is on uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, where the rebellion really comes in. So, so turn to chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> Let's see where this rebellion enters into the pattern in this story. Chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So what went wrong? He abandoned the law. When you abandon the law, in other words, when you abandon God's word, therefore you abandon God. It's not an option to be faithful and remain with God and abandon his word. 
They abandoned the law, therefore they abandoned God. And it says, all Israel with him. Look at verse 14 there of chapter 12. And he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. We said last week this phrase, seeking the Lord, is an important phrase in First and Second Chronicles, something like 20 times. And here we're told he did not seek the Lord. And I love the phrase, he didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. I'd love to unpack that for a little while. But think about that. He didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. Therefore, he ended up doing evil. And all Israel with him. He rebelled. Now, we sometimes have a tendency to think of rebellion, maybe in a light way. We kind of take it lightly. Sometimes we almost kind of celebrate it. Part, I think it's possible. You know, our country was founded on rebelling against a monarchy. I think there's something in our DNA as Americans that sort of, you know, is, is compelled by this idea of rebellion. You see rebellion celebrated in popular culture. I'm very hesitant to make reference to Star Wars because some of you are probably going to correct me afterwards. I'm going to say something wrong, but I'm going to attempt it anyway. Right? Just have mercy on me. I'm pretty confident that in Star Wars, the rebellion are the good guys. Right? You, you, you cheer for the rebellion. And they're, a, they're going against the, the galactic empire. Right? We have schools that have mascots. And the mascot is the rebels. Right? The Ole Miss rebels. The UNLV rebels. And I was curious, you know, especially about UNLV. I got on their website to find out about their mascot. What's the story behind the rebel as the mascot of UNLV? Here's what their website says. UNLV's nickname dates to the university's origin in the mid-1950s, a time when a nation founded by rebels once again became obsessed with the idea of the iconic nonconformist. The decade of the 1950s was epitomized by young people rebelling against their parents' middle-class American values. So UNLV is saying, we remember this period of time in our country's history when parents rebelled against their, I'm sorry, children rebelled against their parents' values, and we like that and celebrate that and want to make a, a mascot out of that concept, right? Say, what are you thinking? This is, this is what you're celebrating? So we have to be careful, and we have to, I think, pause and recognize the rebellion we're talking about here is rebellion against the king, the king of the universe, and therefore there's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing to laugh about rebellion against the king. And I think it's good for us to recognize, you know, who are the, who, who are the first guilty ones? Who is most guilty? The first place you find rebels is look in the mirror, Right? Look in the mirror, and that's where you find a rebel. And Christianity loses its power when Christians sort of forget this or ignore this. We forget that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, among whom I am the worst. Right? We forget, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we have this tendency to say, well, you know, maybe back in the day, but now I've kind of got it all together. Right? And the real rebels are out there in the world. Look out there. Look at all those rebels. And the, the, the message of the gospel is, I'm the worst. Right? We, we, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ came to save sinners among whom I am the worst. And so we have to always keep this in mind. Rebellion is not something to be celebrated. Rebellion is serious. It is universal. It's, every person is marked by their rebellious tendency against the Creator God. 
And if you want to find a rebel, look in the mirror and you'll see, uh, you'll find someone guilty immediately. And it's good for us to remember this and, and to see ourselves as the rebels. So here's the pattern. God blesses. We rebel. What happens next? Third, God warns. And this is good news. The beginning of the message is good news. God blesses. But here's even better news. Even in our rebellion, God doesn't just cut us off. He doesn't say, you messed up, I'm done with you. The Bible says God is slow to anger. And even in our rebellion, guess what he does? He comes to us and he warns us. And in the story, the part of the story where we are, he warns his people through prophets. He sends prophets. And we see this even in chapter 12 with Rehoboam. He sends a prophet. And I want to show you a couple of other examples of when he sends prophets. Chapter 15, if you want to turn there. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. God's going to send a prophet named Azariah to speak to the king named Asa. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet King Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. That's the message of the prophets right there. Say, what, what is the message that the prophets give? There it is right there. It's always this. You're in sin. You need to turn from your sin. You need to seek the Lord. If you do, you'll find him. You'll be blessed. If you don't, if you continue to forsake him, he will forsake you. There will be serious consequences. This is the message of the prophets. Every prophet. It, it, this, is, this is it in a nutshell. Let me show you one other example of a prophet. Chapter 18, if you want to turn there. This is kind of a unique situation where the northern king Ahab and the southern king Jehoshaphat partnered together against another kingdom. And the southern king asked the northern king, did you inquire of God to make sure we have his blessing before we go to war? And the northern king says, yes, I did. And the southern king says, well, I just want to clarify and make sure. Like, did you inquire of every prophet before we go to war? And listen to the northern king Ahab's response. Chapter 18, verse 7. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micah, the son of Imlach, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Like, well, there's one, but we don't want to go to him. He's never got a good word for me. Right? We love a word from the Lord when a word from the Lord is, you're fine. And keep heading in the direction you're heading in. And God's going to bless you. And God only has good things for you. We love that message. Like, who would say, I don't want a word from the Lord, if the word from the Lord is, you're good, God loves you, keep going the direction you're going, it's all blessing from here on out. Yeah, we love that. Bring on the prophets who say that. Bring on the preachers who preach like that. Right? But what we don't like is the prophet or the preacher who says, if you're heading down this road, you've you, you got to turn around now. This leads to death. You've got to make some changes. This is not heading anywhere good. You've got to come back. You've got to return to the Lord. You've got to go a different direction. We don't like hearing that. That disrupts our life. It disrupts our plans. It disrupts our values. 
I like the way things are going. We don't like alarms. We don't like warnings. We used to live in an area of the country called, close to an area of the country called Tornado Alley when we lived in Fort Smith and, and East Texas. And they had these siren, tornado sirens that go off when there's a tornado or a potential of a tornado. And I remember as a kid hearing these, I think they tested them every Wednesday at noon. So it's a part of your psyche. You know, you, you're always hearing a tornado siren. And they're loud. They're meant to get your attention. It's like, you got to do something here. And I remember as a kid practicing tornado drills. You get under the desk if the tornado siren goes off to prepare for the tornado, right? But the, the, the siren itself was meant to be unpleasant and loud and get your attention. And you need to do something. You need to go seek shelter. That's, that's the purpose of an alarm. It's to wake you up. It's to tell you you're heading the wrong direction. Right? When a smoke alarm goes off in your house, it, I don't know about at your house, but at my house, it is annoying as it can be, right? Some, it's, maybe if something's burning or maybe if it's just time to change the battery, if that thing starts going off, you don't say, well, I better get around to change that over the next few days. You know, I got other things I'm doing right now. I got plans, so I can't change it right now. But I'll get around to it in the next couple of days. No, it's like everything stops right then because the alarm just, it just stops you in your tracks. Like I can't even think straight. It's loud. It's annoying. It's unnerving. Everything in your life just stops. And we got to solve this problem. Well, that's, that's, that's the nature of a warning. It's unpleasant. It's getting your attention. It's saying, watch out. Check yourself. Make sure you're not heading down the wrong direction. And, and the warnings from God are often not pleasant, but warnings from God are there for our good. We need warnings. We need alarms. They're there for our good. We have them for a reason. They're unpleasant, but they're good. The warnings from God are unpleasant, but they're good. And my question for you is this. Do you ever hear warnings from God? Right? Do you ever hear a warning from God? And if you say, no, never. Well, that's a warning. Watch out. Right? Because God sends warnings. Well, where, where might a person hear a warning from God? I'll tell you a place number one is called the Bible. Like, show me a book of the Bible where there's not some warning in it. Right? If you're reading the Bible at any level at all, you ought to be coming across warnings all the time. And that's, if you're reading it, God's warning you through His Word. It's, it's by His grace that He warns His people. Right? It's for your good. If you are sitting under biblical teaching, biblical preaching, you better be hearing warnings pretty frequently. If you're not, you need to get a new preacher. Right? You need to get, because if a person's teaching the Bible, then that person is necessarily teaching warnings because warnings come up frequently. So we got to always frequently be hearing, are you sure you're heading down the right path? If you're heading down the wrong path, you need to come back. You need to return. we we got to be hearing that message constantly. That's, that's the message. It's, 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 it's a message from God's Word. Right? Um, where else might we hear warning messages from? Hopefully you're hearing them from your parents. That's one of the roles of parents is to be an alarm. Watch out. I'm here to help you. I love you. I know it's unpleasant, but are you sure this is the direction you need to be going? I'm going to help you go a different direction. Right? We ought to be hearing warnings from our friends. We ought to be hearing warnings from our spouses. Warnings are good. Warnings are from God. Warnings are gracious. Don't, don't ignore them when they come. God warns us by His grace. Fourth, 
we respond. When you hear a warning, you respond. Everyone responds. There's no such thing as, I didn't respond. That was a response. There's ultimately two ways you can respond to God's warnings. One way is to ignore, reject, and continue in your rebellion. And that's the path we focused on when we looked at the book of 2 Kings. We focused and emphasized the rebellious path, the continue in the rejection path. Today we're going to emphasize the, the, the right path of returning and being restored and repenting because today we're in 2 Chronicles. And 2 Chronicles is a book that focuses almost exclusively on the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom does have some kings who respond the right way, respond by repenting and coming back to the Lord. Now, I don't mean to imply by that that, that that all the kings are like that. In fact, there's 20 southern kings after the division of the kingdoms. Twelve of them are evil. Four of them are good. And four of them are kind of depends on the day. Right? And so the general trajectory of the southern kingdom is the same trajectory as the northern kingdom. It just takes them about 135 more years to get to the same place. And so it's marked by rebellion. But... There are a few bright spots along the way. There are a few good kings along the way, and I want to highlight a couple of those and talk about what we can learn from them. The first one is King Hezekiah. So turn to chapter 29, verses 2 through 4. Let's talk about what we can learn from King Hezekiah. Chapter 29, beginning in verse 2. And he did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east. So what do we learn from him? He gave attention to worship. He gave attention to the temple. He said, this is not right. The temple is in ruins. We've got to give attention to it. We've got to restore it. We've got to rebuild it. Fix it back up. And we got to give attention to the, to the Levite, the priests, the spiritual leaders. you got to consecrate yourselves and be holy, verse 5. So he's giving attention to the worship. It becomes a priority for him, the king. He recognizes this is the role of the king, of God's people, is to point people to the Lord, point people toward worship. He, he reinstituted the Passover in chapter 30. And then... He sends out word to all of Israel and encourages them to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to worship. So he sends out this this invitation, so to speak, to all all of Israel, not just the southern kingdom, to to the northern as well. Look, Look with me at chapter 30, verses 9 and 10. He says, For if you return to the Lord... Your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. So one of the lessons we learn is the importance of going out and telling people about the Lord and inviting them to come to Him. And I can't help but plug here the the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Why? What is that? We are raising money to go to support the International Mission Board. 100% of the monies go overseas 
to support missionaries, and especially areas that are, that, that are not very reached with the gospel, where there's not much gospel presence, not many churches, and they're going there to plant churches, churches that plant other churches. And so the strategy is biblical. The strategy is practical. It makes sense. At our church, we have tons of places where we tell you, you can give to this, you can give to that, and we got this mission and that ministry, and, and they're all good. But sometimes when we promote so many, you, you don't, you know, we don't promote any. If you promote everything, you promote nothing. And so what I want to do is say to you, this is the one that I personally prioritize. Me and my family, we, if, if we don't give to any, we'll give to this one. Um, this is the one we prioritize. Why? Once again. It is about missions in an area where the gospel is not very prevalent. And it is a strategy that is committed to the gospel. It's committed to church, local church ministry. It's committed to multiplication and churches reproducing churches. And so for us, for our family, we, we give to this one every year. And I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, because the, there's, a, there's an impulse that's certainly found in the New Testament. And here it is found in the Old Testament. And it is, we need to get this word out. People need to hear there's a problem and there's a solution and God is the solution and return to him. And we see that they did that. And for those who listened and for those who returned, there was great joy. There was great benefits. There was blessing. Look look at chapter 30, verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. There's great joy in returning to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying by that, therefore, life is easy. Life is clearly not easy. They were mocked by many of the people they invited. So they got mocked. They got ridiculed. So the the point here is not return to the Lord and everything's great. The point is return to the Lord and be blessed by him. Return to the Lord and find joy in him. We learn this from Hezekiah. Now let's talk about what we learn from King Josiah. Look, turn to chapter 34, verse 3. What can we learn from King Josiah? Chapter 34, verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy... He began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. So notice it says he was yet a boy. Here's one lesson I want to point out. You can be a young boy and seek the Lord. You can be a young girl and seek the Lord. In fact, I want to address those of you who are younger Seek the Lord now. Begin now. Seek Him. Don't say, I'm going to wait till I'm older to do that. I'm going to wait till I kind of get established in life, and then I'll seek the Lord. No, now's the time. God delights in young people seeking Him. God loves to use young people. He loves to take young people who have a heart for Him and use them for great purposes. So for younger folks, it, it is never too early. You are never too young to seriously seek the Lord. And by the way, for those of you who are older, it's never too late to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And this king, this young king, realized the same thing that Hezekiah realized. We need to give attention to worship. We need to give attention to the Lord. We need to give attention to the temple. So he had people go and start the process of repairing the temple, which had been you know, messed up over time. So they begin to repair. And in the process of repairing, they come across this text. 
this book, so to speak. And guess what? It was God's word. And they brought it to the king and they said, we found this document, this text. And he said, read it to me. And they read it and he recognized it was God's word. And he heard the warning in it because God's word is full of warnings once again. And when he heard the warning, he said, oh, no, we're heading the wrong direction. We are guilty of the things that book is telling us not to do. And if, according to that book, if we continue, we're going to be, God's going to forsake us. We've forsaken him. He's about to forsake us. So the king tore his clothes and mourned and repented and said, we've got to turn. That He heard the warning and responded to the warning the way you're supposed to. And did he say, well, this is just private and it's between me and God and it's my religion and therefore the rest of you can do what you want? No. He said, everybody's got to hear this. This is good news for everybody. It's a warning for everyone. So look with me at chapter 34, verse 30. What he does. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. He read all the words to all the people. What's the principle? What's the lesson? All of God's people need all of God's word. All of God's people need all of God's word. That's the lesson. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why we're going book by book the way we're doing. Because we want to hear all of it. We want to hear from every book. We don't want to pick and choose the ones we like, pick and choose the ones that resonate. We want to hear from all of God's Word. So they read all of God's Word, all of God's people. And it says they responded well, and they experienced blessing because of it, and they lived happily ever after. Right? Wrong. What happens? He dies. Godly king returned, restored, good things, learned from it, absolutely. But he dies. And then what comes next? What's the pattern? An, an, an evil king? More evil kings? Look, look at chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So let's ask this question. What does the evil prompt God to do? It prompts him to warn them. He warns them. He sends more prophets. I love that word persistently. He sent persistently to them his messengers, his prophets. Over and over, God is sending. And the pattern is, eventually, they just mock and ignore and reject. And here's the point I want to focus on here. Everyone responds. The question is not, will you respond to God's warning? The question is, how will you respond to God's warning? I mentioned earlier that we lived near Tornado Alley. And one of the things that happens when the sirens start going off, you usually know because you can look up in the sky and tell something's not right here. And you typically will turn the TV on to watch the news and see what the forecasters are saying, the weathermen. And you can tell, and they usually tell you, okay, here's where the tornado is, and here's where it might be. And then usually they'll say something like this, okay, it's about to come right here in this area, this community. And they'll say, if you live in this area, this neighborhood, this town, if you live here, 
They'll say, you need to go seek shelter right now. And by that they mean, go find an interior room, usually a closet. You want it to be a small room inside the house, not on the outside, on the inside, no windows. Sometimes they'll say, get in a bathtub. But you know, th- this happened. I mean, we, we, we experienced this multiple times in our lives. And I think it's really interesting to contrast the difference between the way that Whitney responded to that warning and the way that I responded to that warning. All right? Whitney, bless her heart, <laughs> heard the warning and actually did what they said. Like immediately. If the guy said, go take shelter, she's like, well, he's, it's the weatherman. He said, go take shelter. We got to go take shelter. I, on the other hand, you know, heard, you need to go take shelter. There's a tornado. And guess what I did? I got to go see this thing. <laughs> but if there's a tornado, I can't miss this opportunity. And so I actually did the opposite of what I was supposed to do. I went outside. I wasn't even thinking about going outside until he told me, go take shelter. <laughs> go take shelter. I'm going outside. And so I would go outside. And then I would see the other, you know, uh, neighbors who also decided to go outside. <laughs> and we would have a little powwow and talk. Right? Well, maybe we ought to go inside. Okay, we'll go inside. Right? Here's the point. Everybody responds. The question is, how are you going to respond? Right? There's no such thing as, I didn't respond. You, you respond. Some people respond. They hear the warning and they say, I, I, need to, I need to return. I need to repent. I need to go seek shelter. I hear it. I trust it. I believe it. I need to seek shelter. Some people hear the warning and say, I'm going to run to the danger, right? That's, that, that's, by the way, that's the foolish response, right? That's the foolish response. Like, don't run to the danger. Run away from it. it the warning, the problem is not with the warning. You could blame the warning. If it hadn't been for the warning, I wouldn't have run outside. Maybe they just need to stop with the sirens. No, that's not the solution. The solution is I need a heart change, right? I need some wisdom. You hear the warning, you don't run to the problem. You don't run to the danger. You run to shelter. You run to safety. That makes sense. Everybody responds to the warnings. Some people respond by saying, I don't believe it. Some people respond by saying, I I reject it. Some people respond by saying, I don't care. Some people respond by just rolling over and going back to sleep. I'm just going to sleep. But that's, that's rejection too, right? Ignoring is rejecting. So there's ultimately two responses. And this brings us to the fifth and final part of the pattern, and that is God responds. God responds after we respond. And we've already established this, but I'm just going to say it again. If we seek Him, He responds by blessing us. And and, and therefore, the pattern gets resolved. We're back to where we started. Where do we start? God blesses. So if you respond by seeking Him, repenting, turning to Him, returning to Him, you end up at the beginning. God blesses. But if, on the other hand, we respond by rejecting Him, there are consequences. He's patient. He keeps sending warnings, but He won't keep sending warnings forever. There are consequences. And and I want you to see the consequences for the southern kingdom. Look at chapter 36, verse 17. Therefore he, referring to God, brought up against them, referring to his people, the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. 
Look at verse 19. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. So how does God ultimately respond to their rejection? Very seriously. He removes them from the land. Many of them are killed. He, he, they are exiled to another land where they are enslaved. What does he do with the city? It's burned. And it, notice it says he raised up the Babylonians to do this. He raised up the Babylonians to judge his people. So this is God's judgment against his people. Fire, the temple destroyed, the city destroyed, walls broken down. This is God's response ultimately to their ultimate response, which was rejection. But the good news is God still remains faithful to his promise. A promise he made long ago to Abraham, a promise he made to David. And we see God at work behind the scenes and the same God who raised up Babylon to judge his people, the southern kingdom, is the same God who's going to bring Babylon down eventually and there's going to be another power that's going to rise and it's Persia. And listen to how the book ends. This is incredible. Listen to the very end of the book. Chapter 36, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So what does God do? He stirs the spirit of a pagan king named Cyrus so that the pagan king named Cyrus, Persian king, says, I want you all to return to Jerusalem and I want you to rebuild the temple. God's in control. Here he is in control. And the Persian king says, I want you to go up. And that's how the book ends. Let him go up. Let us go up. It's a call to worship. It's a call to go up to Jerusalem, up to the temple to worship. Because remember, think about who, we talked about this last week, who was the original audience of the book of First and Second Chronicles? It was God's people who had been exiled to Babylon and then returned from Babylon to rebuild. They've rebuilt, and now they're a little discouraged because life isn't like it used to be. Things aren't as good. They don't have as much power. The, the, the temple is not anything like it used to be. And what's the chronicler saying? Why does he end? Let us go up. Let us go up and worship the Lord. And guess what? That's the same message for you and me today. Let us go up and return to the Lord and worship him. Let us go up. Even if you feel a little discouraged. Well, I just don't feel like it. And you know, things just don't seem, I just don't feel like worshiping. Let us go up. To worship, We have even more reason, even more motivation to go up to worship than, than these people did. Because we know what the rest of the story. Several hundred years later, God is going to return to His people and He's going to send His Son to them. His Son, the King. And the King is here to establish His kingdom. And I want us to real briefly think about the pattern that we've just laid out and think about how the pattern relates to Jesus, the King. First of all, what's the first part of the pattern? God blesses. So Jesus exists in this blessed state with the Father. The Son of God has existed eternally with God the Father in a blessed state. Uh, Glorified, blessed. And yet, He willingly chooses to leave that state of blessing. He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace. 
And he came to earth, and he, he didn't give up his divine nature, but he added to his divine nature human nature. He humbled himself by taking on the form of flesh. Right? Pleased as man with men to dwell. He was pleased to become a man in order to dwell among men. So he left heavenly glory to enter into a rebellious world as a baby. Wow. The second part of the pattern, we said that we rebel. Does Jesus ever rebel? He never rebels against the Father, against the Father's will, against the Father's plan. He obeys. He's like us in every way, yet without sin. So it's an incredible miracle that he grows up as one of us and yet never rebels. What's the third part of the pattern? The the warning. God warns. So God doesn't need to warn Jesus because Jesus never sins. But, But I would say there's a... There's a warning in the sense of God, the Father, gives him the mission. There's a mission. It's a divine mission, and it's a difficult mission. And it's going to involve giving your life. So the Father gives him a mission that's difficult. And the Son, how does he, once again, the fourth part, we respond. We respond to the warning. How does the Son respond to the mission? He accepts it. And he takes on flesh and he's born as one of us in order to grow up and live a life of obedience in order to go to the cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus responded by obeying all the way to the end. And therefore we said God responds. God responds based on how we respond. God responds to the Son. How did God respond to the Son? He responded to him by raising him up from the grave. And God did this. Why? Why did God do this? He did it so that he could dwell among us, his people. There had to be a removal of sin for a holy God to be with us. So the holy God wants to dwell among us. He provides the way through his Son so that he can dwell among us, his people. The God who doesn't need heaven or the highest heaven. The the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. He needs nothing. He needs no one. And yet he says, this is my people. I want to dwell among them. And he provides the way by sending his son to lay down his life for us so that we could be his people and he could be our God and we could live under his rule and we could make him known as the great king. He did all of this so that we would respond. He did this so that we would respond. Respond how? Respond by hearing the warning. What's the warning? You're a rebel. If you stay in your rebellion, it'll lead toward your death, eternal death. It'll lead toward terrible consequences. So turn back and run to Him. Run to His provision. What is His provision? His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, laying down His life for you. Go to Him. Run to Him. And be saved. And have God dwell with you. And dwell with Him. And have Him be your King. And live life the way it's meant to be lived. Hear the warning and respond. Listen, final verse, Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God is speaking right now from heaven by his word, and he's saying, here's your warning. It's a gracious warning. Don't ignore it. Don't reject it. Respond to the warning. How? Not by running into a closet to be spared from a tornado, but by running to Christ who gave his life for you so that you can be saved. Let's pray.